Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. Okay, here we are. This is going to be another long episode. My guest this time is hypnotist Tom Silver. We have a really interesting episode for you that gets into some of the mechanisms as to the workings of the mind and what we might do to have a better relationship with our own inner process, not just the mind, but the emotion as well. There's not much more for me to say in this introduction. I don't want to take up more time because there's much to go. If you're interested in checking out Tom's work, you can go to tomsilver.com. And if you're interested in supporting the Assembly of Silence, well, you know what to do. It's pretty simple. There are links in the show note description. Hope you enjoy the show. <laughs> Tom Silver, thanks for joining me here. Yo! Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, I usually just uh, just kind of wing it free freestyle and can do kind of an intro uh, after the fact that I record. But if you want uh, to either introduce yourself or if you have something up front that you'd like to say to set the scene, the stage is yours. Well, thanks. I'm Tom Silver. I've been a hypnotist for 37 years. And I want to tell all the listeners that when you think you have problems, when you think you have fears or you've been programmed from the past and you're still affected by all that negativity, guess what? <laughs> I said negativity. Negativity. Guess what? It is not the past that's affecting you. It's your mind. <laughs> and, and the key is to learn how to operate your mind. Huh? What were you going to say? That is perfect. That is a perfect introduction to this. It brings up a whole bunch of different things. One, of course, is, you know, we're hopefully people are listening to this because they want to find new information to help themselves in their lives, something that's going to be useful, right? And so one of the, the primary things that we're all confronted with is how to better manage ourselves. How do we behave better? How do we change what we need to change in order to move ahead in life? And, and of course, the other thing that you're mentioning there is something that we had discussed prior to the show, which has to do with time and, and mm-hmm. sort of the weight of the past and how we view time. So I think that that's a, a great entryway into the discussion. Well, absolutely. And, and think about it. Um, how many people actually live in the moment? Really, how many people actually live in the moment without their mind and their thoughts going backwards or going forwards? And I'll say probably very few. And that's because so many of us um, uh, ruminate. In other words, they reflect on the past or or we create a future that's doom and gloom, disaster built on fear, which is overreactive, negative imagination. But the key, the key to everyone's success, including yours, Noah, including mine, and that is to learn how to operate this dual processing computer, not to be programmed every day for destruction, stress, tension, worry, fear, anger, um, but to be the programmer, to be the IT technologist of your own mind. And by doing that, you've got to realize one important thing, you are not your mind. The, The goal and the key is you are the operator of your mind until you realize that truth until you stop allowing your mind to operate you, until you change those linguistical auto-suggestive negative thought patterns 
into something positive, productive, until you start to live in the present and, and accept whatever's happened in the past, man, that's just history. We talked about that. Nothing in the past is alive anymore. It's no longer there. It's for, for in all intention, intent purposes, it's dead. The past doesn't exist in reality, in the current reality of the moment. And the future doesn't exist in that reality. So how right. I paint the pictures of the future, how I operate my mind in an effective way by being a witness to my thoughts, not being a, a slave to the dictator within my head, telling me to feel mad, be angry, be sad, um, you know, uh, whatever, whatever goes on in all that activity. It's activity. Am I the controller of the activity? Am I the operator of the activity? Or is the activity determining my quality or lack of quality of life? Okay, there's an awful lot that you said right there, and I'd really like to kind of drill into it as much as possible. Uh, one is the question of how right. many people actually live in the present. And, you know, we have to acknowledge that to some extent, our ability to reflect on things is useful. And, you know, it may be that if we were to truly just live in the present, it might be a wonderful experience, but it may not last very long because it's easy for people who uh, don't reflect on things to lose track of, of where they are in their lives and to uh, be taken advantage of as well. So, you know, th this this time facility that we have within our heads is evolutionarily useful. It's just that we've kind of abused it and misused it and it has become uh we've become slaves to it instead of it being useful to us anymore you know what you're saying is correct man the the, the history our past could be a wonderful tool as a learning tool but when we are haunted by it when we are emotionally attached by the negative when we spend our time blaming dad for yelling at me when I was three years old and telling me I'm a loser, then maybe we're making a little bit of a mistake. So yeah, yeah. if you really think about it, we, it, the best way to do it is to, if you reflect on your past to learn from it, how did your past make you a better person in who you are right now? If you're going to think about the future, well, paint a picture of some goals or desires you want to achieve and get out of that limited comfort zone. Get out of your self-pity uh, party in in, uh, uh, in in the depths of despair, and and really just realize that every day, every day is a new beginning in your life. So, what have I learned from my past to make me a better person? You know, hey, in my past, I had two divorces. I mean, uh, they were great divorces. I made money from each divorce. What man makes money in a divorce? Really? Yeah. Uh, hey. How did you do that? <laughs> well, I'll tell you a simple uh, technique, uh, everyone, viewers, and, and for you, Noah, I know you're married, um, but we never know about the future. The key is to have a successful divorce and make money in your divorce is make sure before uh, you have that divorce that your wife falls in love with somebody else. Because then they want to get out of the marriage. And by getting out of the marriage, they don't want to be drawn out by, by these lawyers that are no, no different than, than agitators. And it's a, a great way to leave a marriage. Of course, 
if I was affected by that marriage, if I said, oh, my God, my wife cheated on me. How could she do that? You know, I'm the best thing that ever happened to her. No, I wasn't the best thing to ever happen to them. But I had the chance to realize what was my part in this? In other words, this is important. We're drifting into something different. But how many of us blame everybody for our reality? Hey, she did this to me. He did that to me. You know, um, again, going back to my dad. My dad said I'm going to be fat and ugly. And now I'm fat and ugly. You know, um, yeah, I do need to lose a little weight. But that's besides the point. I thought you were going to tell me that you hypnotized your wife into falling into love with someone else. Well, we won't go into that. That's in my newest book coming out, How to Manipulate Your Wife to Marry Someone Else to Make a Lot of Money. No, that, no, I'm kidding. I didn't do that. But the fact is, think about it. Somebody in a relationship, it goes sour, it goes bad. All of a sudden, they're wounded. You know, I'm a, I'm a wounded human being. I will never trust a, a woman or a man again because I've been hurt. You know, I had a, a client yesterday morning on zoom and you know she her her boyfriend after six years you know just broke up with her now i don't trust men so in other words am i going to be scarred for life or am i going to let the wound heal realize maybe it was just wasn't meant to be and move on with a greater quality of life or maybe even learn a lesson in that relationship i tried to tell her that we all play a role in relationships and if something works or doesn't work, whatever, we have some responsibility to that relationship or to it working or not working. And I think that's the key in life too. Mm-hmm. Teach people mm-hmm. responsibility. Um, but but the fact is, how can we even, I'm gonna leave this question to you, Noah. How could we live in the present when the intention span of most American human beings is probably five seconds, give or take? If someone has an attention span of five seconds, give or take these days, because of a adrenaline and technology stimulation, how can we live in the past at five seconds at a time? Yeah, I think it's a global thing now. It's not just in the technological West, but it seems like uh, pretty much around the globe, people have been conditioned in this new way, kind of this, uh, well, you know, right now we're we're participating in that medium. And God willing, people will have more than a five second attention span what we're talking about, because we're probably going to go for at least an hour. And it would be a pity to only have uh, the first five seconds absorbed. Uh, And I think in general, you know, uh, there there are there's a divergence happening. There's uh, people who have been completely conditioned by this new technology. And there are people who are kind of waking up to this and uh, some of the long format things that are happening online where people are really exploring ideas and talking about important issues is showing that, you know, the human spirit is still alive and and people are trying to figure things out. So I think that's that's a hopeful sign. But it's also true, I think, to some extent that we are in, in a struggle against some very basic natural processes. You know, the conditioning aspect of things is something that happens with all species, right? And, and the, the experiences that we have, uh, all living creatures, are, are conditioned by those experiences. So it's, it's, it's easy to point out that, yeah, all these things that happened to you in the past, they don't really they're not happening anymore. They're not uh, real in the sense of they're not going on now, 
But nevertheless, the impact is something that remains, and we have to figure out some way to relieve ourselves of that, of the force of that impact. And I think that's where you might say that hypnotism comes into the story. Is, is that fair to say? Well, uh, absolutely. And when you think about it, when you say the impact, let's just go one step further in abstract thinking that we are electrically charged from those events of the past. This is interesting. We are neurologically, physiologically, electrically charged by those memories. And whether they're positive memories or or negative memories or positive events or, or negative events, when I say we're charged, I mean it affects our nervous system. It, 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 it's a message in the brain that creates an electrical transmission into the spinal cord that goes down through our nerve endings into the neurons, you know, get charged up and into the nervous systems. So when we think about that, events from the past, if there is a electrical connection, I'm not saying positive or negative, but if there is some type of connection, we can call it emotional connection. We can call it an electrical connection. I like to, to get more into electricity because this body is a, is a chemical electrical chamber, you know, and, and, we, and we also transmit current out. And we can call that the projection of our intention, of our energy, of what we put out because we are uh, electricity with the mechanism within our body, within ourselves. And if you even look up what neurons are, neurons are little electrical particles within the body. So the fact is, if I'm still charged, if I am still amplified Hmm. from the events of the past, um, and if they're the negative events of the past, I haven't been able to let them go. I haven't created resolution in them. I haven't deleted them out of my subconscious hard drive. And I think it's important for us to find a method to be able to do it. Some of us can do it by ourselves. Some of us need various therapies or modalities or or even medicines or meds to be able to lower the current. I don't believe in lowering the amplitude Mm. because it's the amplitude. Think about it. This is cool, folks. This is really cool. our brain is uh, is electrical. It, we'll call it like a transformer. It, it's a it's a bunch of electrical energy, and it's mm-hmm. <clears throat> just like electricity. Electricity operates on on voltage, 110, 120 volts, and we can call those forms of frequencies, just like music. Um, so electricity operates on frequencies, like the brain does, beta, alpha, theta, and delta. But within those frequencies is the activity within those frequencies. Now, the uh, neuroscientists call it mind power. I like to look at it as as amplitude activity. In other words, volume. Make it simple. It's like you're you're using your cell phone, so you push the little button to turn the volume up so you can hear better. So when we think about that and we look at electricity as voltage and amperage, the voltage isn't so destructive to the human uh, uh, body or to the organs. It's the rate of speed of that voltage. It's the intensity of that voltage. And that's the amplitude. So when you get a shock, <clears throat> you touch a, uh, some wire and you get this shock and your body jolts, you jolt your nervous system, you're probably still going to be alive. You're probably not going to have a heart attack or switch off or shut down. But if you have strong 
amperage, like being hit by lightning or something like that, then everything inside you fries. Think about emotions like that, that the negative emotions, Hmm. the strength and power of those emotions could affect the organs in your body. You you might wind up with uh, with hypertension or ulcers or even worse, it might create um, a cancer aneurysms. Um, maybe you'll have a heart attack um, or or something like that. An organ that's weak within the body might malfunction or shut down because of the surge of the emotion going through our nervous system. And it's mm-hmm. important that we understand that as a science, just like hypnosis. Uh, I'm not walking around with this little pocket watch and saying, look into my eyes. You are getting hypnotized. You will watch this this podcast over and over again. I'm not doing that. I just put in a suggestion, by the way, to let you know. Um, But the fact is (laughs) we do need to realize that thoughts, when they're attached to emotion, which is your subconscious, become realized as the truth and can affect us in a positive or negative way. Am I making sense to you? Yes, it makes perfect sense to me. So then the question becomes, well, you know, we live in a world where people are experiencing various uh, trauma, much of which is quite real, some of which is uh, cultivated. Uh, And then, of course, there's the sort of low voltage background uh, difficulty, the wear and tear of daily life, some circumstances that are, uh, you know, for instance, a lot of people hate their jobs. So it's not like they're getting a shock every day, but over the course of time, they're kind of having this negative experience that accumulates, uh, give it 20, 25 years, and and you've got uh, a serious situation going on where the experience that one is having has been... I'm trying to think of a word that that's that's not uh, negative, but expresses a negative uh, state, you know, so, you know, optimally, we're enjoying our lives. But there's so many circumstances now where people are finding it very difficult to to find even moments of enjoyment. Uh, There are maybe moments of distraction, and that might explain, you know, why there's so much uh, emphasis placed on the media and what have you. And the number of films that are produced every year just blows my mind every every time. You know, it's, it's hard to believe that that amount of money and energy is being poured into uh, essentially distractions, you know, because very few of them have much enriching content. <laughs> but, you know, so so in some sense, we're, we're struggling against the reality of of, you might say, modern postmodern life. And so to what extent can we be effective, even though there's an absolute truth in the abstract uh, picture that you're painting, where if we can come to this understanding, and it's a very ancient understanding of, you know, that your mind is not your, your yourself, and that the objects in the mind are not real. That, that's an ancient understanding. And, and I think probably it was an understanding that was developed because there were somewhat similar circumstances that happened in civilizations throughout history. But nevertheless, you know, you sort of wake up from the dream every day and go, okay, well, now I got to, you know, the classic phrase is uh, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. And now, you know, chopping wood and carry water is actually quite uh, a beautiful thing to do. Uh, You know, now it might be before enlightenment, spend uh, 10 hours in front of a computer coding after enlightenment, spend 10 hours in front of a computer coding, you know? So uh, 
how do we address that? You know, how do we get uh, more comfortable with the uncomfortable situations that we're confronted with in, in our in our real lives? Well, let's face it. Enlightenment is a state of mind. It's a state of being. But you said something very important. How many people go to work and they hate their jobs? Well, hate is a very strong word. Uh, but hate is a power word. Mm. Just like the word love is a power word. If I was asked 10 people, what does the word love mean to you? I'd have 10 different interpretations. If I asked 10 people, what does the word hate mean to you? I'd have 10 different interpretations because it's also based on our sociological life experiences and how we, um, how we observe and react to our reality. So if I think about, I hate my job, uh, and I turn that into a truth, then the fact is every time I'm going to work, I'm discontent. So why am I continuing to do it? Because people are comfortable in an uncomfortable zone. People are, some people are afraid to step out of that box or that limited belief system. Some people uh, actually to hate something is part of their story. So some people actually love the feeling of hating something. I don't think that everybody who is depressed is clinically depressed. I don't think that everybody who has phobias or panic attacks it, uh, might have that true um, disorder. But I think there are side effects or benefits to certain things. We call it secondary gains. So if I have agoraphobia, meaning I have a, a fear to leave a home, like a lady I worked with years ago um, who wouldn't leave her home, one of the, the, the positive side effects of that is if I can convince you that my agoraphobia, and I'm not saying it's not real. I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm not saying that these are not real psychological or medical disorders. So, so don't get me wrong, folks. But one of the side effects and benefits of being an agoraphobic, if I'm pretty cool at figuring out how to manipulate people, is I will search out that person and I will either find that codependent person that wants to save me and heal me, or I will create a state of codependency based on my hopelessness to another human being that I can amplify their sympathetic responses. And, and let me tell you the difference between sympathy and empathy. You might already know this, Noah, but maybe not everyone does. I didn't know it for quite a while. So I got in the field of, of um, neuroscientific hypnosis. Sympathy is I'm feeling your pain. Sympathetic response. So I'm watching TV and I'm seeing all this horrible news first thing in the morning when I wake up and I'm all suggestible because I'm in a low brainwave state. And I'm watching all this murders and deaths and bombings and all this stuff. Is that going to set me up for a really good day or a bad day if I... If I am sympathetic, it's going to affect me. But if I have empathy, that means I understand your situation. I'm not internalizing it, but maybe together we can create a positive outcome or a res resolution to that. So I, I think right. when we talk about hate and love and winning and losing and happy and sad, we're only focusing on the extremes. I think we've become sometimes a society of just extreme thinking, extreme opposites. <laughs> yeah. Guess what? There is a lot 
of space in between that extreme opposite. Does it make sense right. to you? Absolutely. So it's important not to give yourself the, the suggestions by using certain words that are amplified in our interpretation of that word and how they relate into our life. And I'm talking about every human being's life. I'm not talking just about me. We got to realize certain very strong words will leave, will will transmit an emotional impact into our psyche, into ourself. And and yep. if you, if you hate your job, why aren't you doing something about it? Because really, then the question is: Is hating your job just your storyline? Is it just part of your right. your way of bringing everyone else down? Because misery loves company. Guess what? Happiness loves loves company also. What do we do to change? <laughs> what do we do to change our situation? Right, exactly. So yeah, it seems like part of what you're saying on a most elemental level is that we're looking for a kind of distance from the experience that we're having. We want to be able to step back from it and see it for what it is instead of just getting overwhelmed by it uh, or absorbed in it. And I think it's very true that we live in a time of extremes. And I've often wondered like, is that kind of a byproduct of the of the individual, the century of the self, I guess you could say, the need for people to distinguish themselves in some way or another and this kind of ever rising level of achievement technologically and so trying to find some way of making a mark and what have you and everyone gets into that game and at a certain point you know some people eventually go well I'll make my mark by having more plastic surgery on my butt than anyone else you know what I mean so it just kind of goes to all kind of crazy levels and people start doing uh jackass you know just what's the most idiotic, ridiculous thing that, that I can get people to do or do myself so in extreme sports, you know, people uh, ever pushing the limit on what a human body has been able to do in the past. So we're, we're definitely a culture that really admires that. And I think we're suffering the consequences of it. Well, think about the, those shows, Jackass and everyone else, all, all those things, those extremes. How many people watch those type of shows, and then they want to be famous. They want to be on TV. They want people to know who they are. You know, um, I, I had some lady say, "Well, don't. What's your? What is the legacy you want to leave? Well, what the hell is that? That's just ego. Uh, I'm, oh, I'm going to leave a legacy that I'm the 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 first scientific hypnosis guy to take hypnosis into the medical scientific realm. Legacy. You know, everything. Everything." Almost everything gets forgotten, even the actors and actresses and, and the celebrities back in the 1800s. Who remembers them? But the bottom line right. is we have a culture and society now of, of kids that their goal in life is to be famous, not to be um, a scientist or, or an artist or, or, a, or, or a musician or, or somebody, some other type of art or science. But it's to be famous. They they did an interview of a bunch yeah. of kids. So, you know, people now can everyone can be famous and everyone can have their little bit of fame. But if I do something very dangerous, chances are people are going to want to watch it because people are looking for the thrill. They're not looking for the substance. Right. And I, I'm generalizing. Don't get me wrong, folks. I don't mean every one of you. Come on. You know, I watch Nova and other shows and, and I'm sure you're, there are people out there that 
want to further their their culture and and, and knowledge of life or, or their, their yeah, it's just one of many trends right but when you think about it we are some of us are living a very superficial life and and shows like jackass or in the old days it was jerry springer let's yell and scream and fight you know i went on those shows i was on the bill cunningham show years ago and i was working with people with um obsessive compulsive disorders and things like that but you know what they were doing to those people they were giving them all these high caffeine drinks throughout the day to get them so amped up and they know they were on tv so they could they could become aggressive towards each other for some reason it it seems like people like to see or gravitate towards that aggressive behavior i'm not sure why but but come on what's the one number one sport out there in america it's football and you know sure football is an art and it and it's really fantastic but also when you watch football or boxing there are going to be people that are going to get physically affected by it or hurt by it. Well, and uh, now you've got it explicit too. You, you've got mixed martial arts, which is huge. I mean, it's yeah. kind of taken over boxing and that stuff is brutal. I don't know if you ever want it, but it's wow. You know, it, it's not like boxing used to be. So right. yeah, there's and an underlying aggression. I think it comes from, you know, basically as a society, we, we, uh, you know, civilization requires that you put aside your aggressive tendencies and uh, and try to be nice to people. And after a while, people just kind of get fed up with that. It, it's like an accumulating and, hostility that eventually has to find its way out one way or another. Right. So that's people, my theory. I don't know if people, it's true. And maybe people channel out their inner aggression. Maybe human beings were born to be, you know, vicious animals. Heck, I don't know. I'm not sure. All I know is that sometimes our primitive mind is the fight and flight. The reptilian brain is you either run away yeah. or you attack. We definitely weren't as aggressive as many of the other animals because, you know, we, we, we just don't have the hardware for it. You know, we're 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 pretty much a runaway kind of species. Okay, <laughs> Most well, of the well, other species are. And, and I, I love what you're saying, but let's realize some of the truth here, brother. Let's realize uh, if you've ever studied uh, the medieval period or, or even the Dark Ages, I mean, just into the 15, 16, 1700s, there were, there were um, um, uh, executions of, of accused prisoners in Europe that had, that had thousands of spectators watching. We're talking women, men, husbands, wives, kids, watching someone get right. cut open, drawn and quartered, um, disemboweled, and then slowly, painfully uh, executed. And you had masses right. of, of regular people watching during World War II, the Nazis. Right. You know, and Hitler was, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm just I, saying. I take... No, I, I take that back. I was kind of thinking just on on a on a purely physical level, evolutionarily speaking, like we just don't we don't have the fangs, we don't have the claws, that kind of thing. But you're absolutely right. We we make up for that with our technology, and and clearly we've been absolutely brutal. So yeah, I didn't really f phrase that very well. Well, and when you think about it, how many of us, you know, and I'm I'm not, you know, I, me too. How many of us have thought in our mind of doing something destructive? To a society or someone else or whatever 
I mean, you know, it, it, we just don't usually act upon it. But there is a small percentage of people that will act upon it. Um, where I get concerned is most of the news that we watch creates anger and fear. And I think anger and fear is, an, is a, a very powerful hypnotic tool and technique that's used mm. out there in the masses. And I think anger and fear takes a toll Big time on, on a lot of us. And then when I live in fear, I'm living in a hyper-suggestible hypnotic state. With my eyes open, wide awake, I am hypnotized. Now, people, when you watch a movie and you focus on the movie and you engage in that movie and you're feeling the emotions of the movie, you're hypnotized. The movie actually put you into a hypersensitive, suggestible state. So I always, mm. I always get a little concerned that are we being too manipulated for some end result that someone up there in the higher plateaus of society knows exactly what they're doing. And, is, and right. when I can create fear, I can control you. Because if I can create fear, um, the fear is a very strong catalyst for manipulation. And we see that happen all right. the time. If I'm and not it's living happening in faith, big time nowadays. Yeah, I, I I I like to live in faith. I actually have faith. I'm not going to get into my personal belief system uh, unless we talk about. It. But I have a strong faith in in a power greater than myself. And when I have faith, fear is low. When I am lacking faith in myself or in something, nature, environment, something more powerful than me. If I have faith in that. Then, then I can have a lower fear. But I think we're being bombarded and manipulated through through all types of visual auditory stimulation for some type of end result. What do you yep. think? So this touches on something I really wanted to talk with you about, which is uh, the extent to which hypnotism is something that has been integrated into society. So I was going to ask you, and you kind of just said it, basically, uh, are we a hypnotized species? uh or civilization you know and it seems like yeah we we pretty much are right oh, well, absolutely. <laughs> and so you know one of the things that i think people are, are a little wary about when they hear the word when they hear the word hypnotism people go oh you know someone might be able to get into my head and control me but you know it, it's typically thought like you don't you don't meet a lot of hypnotists anymore but what you're saying really is that actually we're all being hypnotized all the time and that hypnotism is alive and well and being practiced at the highest levels of society. And that quite often it's have a, having a deleterious effect on, on humanity. And so, you know, I guess what you might say, well, fight fire with fire, right? So, the, you know, there, there are good hypnotists that might help us uh, combat the, the hypnotism that we're all being exposed to that's causing so much misery, really. Well, yeah, and guess what? There are also not so good hypnotists that can program somebody to plant a bomb somewhere, to shoot and kill innocent people uh, through through religion or through brainwashing or through hypnosis. It's all basically under the same umbrella, you know. I mean, the fact is, most hypnotists will tell you there's. You won't, oh, hypnosis is completely safe. You don't do anything against your morality. You're completely in control and everything else. Well, you know, maybe for a high percentage of the population, that's true. And most hypnotists don't really know the true power of, of 
operating somebody's mind and shutting off and turning the conscious into unconscious. See, if I can shut the switch off of your analytical processes of morality or resistance or whatever, I can program you to do something. Maybe I can program you to, to stop drinking alcohol may, or, or stop crystal meth or, or, or delete and remove your fears or phobias. But maybe I can program you through post-hypnotic suggestions and setting up triggers that at 10 p.m. tonight, you're going to walk out of your house. There's going to be a, 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 a gun that you that is underneath your, your door mat. And you're going to walk over to your neighbors, knock on the door. When they open the door, you're going to shoot them in the head. Now, if, if, if you don't think that can be done under hypnosis or, or the people watching, then you don't understand the power of, of the mind and the power of what goes on when you can remove morality, cognitive interference and borders and resistance and get into the pure operating system of that mind. The subconscious mind on some people can be programmed just like putting in a software program. And that's why it's important before you work with a hypnotist or psychologist or whoever to make sure and do your homework and make sure they're credible people. Uh, you know, I, I hate to say this, but I've, I've known hypnotists that have sexually seduced their, pay, their clients under hypnosis. I knew one guy who was a rabbi that did that, you know, oh, wow. and, um, you know, it's horrible, but not everyone has morality and integrity. Let's face it. We're almost in right. a world of people that care so much about money and manipulation that honesty, integrity are a thing of a past. Uh, I'm reviewing a book right now, and one of the areas of the book was how to give certain suggestions before you take the client out of hypnosis, probably to continue to to um, hypnotize them over and over again or something like that. You know, I mean... It, right, it's, it, the it's really practice. But, but there are natural stages of hypnosis. Guess what? We all go into amnesia, memory losses. We all experience amnestic states. You put your cell phone down somewhere an hour later. You're looking for it. You don't remember where you put it. You, you lock the key to your, your home. You go in your car. I've done this. You start your car and you go, oh, man, did I, did I lock my front door? And you go back and check it. So the fact is, yeah, I've been, I've been trying to find the keys to my car for two weeks now. Well, there you go. There, is that the truth? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, so you see, we all... I mean, I had another set, but... We all sometimes go into uh, spontaneous fractional synambulism. And what is synambulism? It's sleepwalking. What is a sleepwalker? Persiger, an old French uh, aristocracy guy who was working in the days of mesmer, mesmerism, magnetism. You know, he coined the, the name synambulism, sleepwalking. So what is a sleepwalker? A sleepwalker is somebody that is doing something. They're, when they're sleepwalking, they might be cleaning their home. Uh, they might be doing all kinds of stuff. Uh, they might walk out of the house and walk into the street and get run over by a car. But the sleepwalker, when they come to full consciousness in the morning, they don't remember anything that's occurred. Spontaneous amnesia occurs in sleepwalking. Because what is a sleepwalker? Are they conscious or are they on a subconscious, um, unconscious operation? They're on an unconscious operation. Think about the chemical blackout with a drunk. And think about what that chemical mm. blackout is. You're still doing things, and you might be doing horrible things, 
but the alcohol has induced a state of chemical somnambulism. The alcohol has put you into a unconscious, lack of better words, I don't really like this word, trance state. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. And I think the viewers are mm -hmm. going to find this stuff interesting because I'm telling you the real deal. I'm not watering down everything and just, you know, diluting the stuff. You know, hey, I've been doing this stuff for 37 years, teach courses around the world. Um, if you want to investigate me, the website's tomsilver.com. But, but the bottom line is we need to be aware of when we are being put into that ultra high suggestible state. And, and right. And it's, kind of it's happening in so many different ways. Yeah. We, yeah. So find distance from that and, and be aware that it's not just a, a, a hypnotist with a watch in front of your eyes. That's going to set you into that state. It could be any number of things. And more often than not, uh, when you're watching media, uh, that's what's being done to you. Uh, certainly a lot of the drugs that are running around nowadays, all of those have a tendency to put you in a, a similarly suggestible state, right? Absolutely. Um, there's just so many different, different, uh, it's a minefield really in many respects, you could say that everyone is being confronted with a, a kind of a minefield in order to just avoid, uh, a terrible state of mind. It's, it's an incredibly challenging situation. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, and you said something really interesting. It's a minefield. It's a mind minefield. Right. Yeah. You know, it's a mind field. In other words, um, yeah. when we think about the art of of manipulation or persuasion, um, it's running rampant these days, man. You know, people watching, you know, what, going on the internet and seeing all these things. Also, let's talk about the... the desensitization of the human psyche there's so mm, much violence right. in, in the movies there's so much live violence on the internet you can watch people being beheaded and executed and everything else we're becoming desensitized everyone talks about um sociopaths and all of this stuff you know people that are insensitive to everything and and people around them and they just hurt you and they don't care well guess what we're a product of that society that is that is desensitizing us with so much graphics and and even in, in cartoons or interactive games and things like that. So it's the desensitization of America and this various societies that might also be one of the challenges that we have right now. Absolutely. And, you know, it goes back quite a ways now. So uh, recently, uh, for reasons I'm not entirely clear about, we decided to revisit the Terminator movie series, which I never really watched before. But a, a friend of mine was talking about it and I didn't really know what he was talking about. And I think I just thought like, OK, well, that's enough of a cultural reference for me to spend a couple hours and watch it. And I did see the sec the second one when it first came out, and I couldn't understand it. All I was I was just horrified by it. And I was in a movie theater back. You know, we used to go to movies, <laughs> and everyone was like laughing and having a great time. And I really I was completely alienated by the experience. I was like, wow, what the hell's going on here? This is not good. Doesn't bode well for the future. That's that was how I felt in the '80s when I saw it. And then now I watched it recently, and like this was made in the '80s. And they're just like, like blazing through these scenes with guns firing, killing left and right. And it's just it, it's just entertainment. It, it, you know, it's, it's that's 
that's fun, you know, and it's presented that way back in the eighties, you know? So <laughs> it's been going, this entrainment has been going on for a very long time. And yeah. I know that some of the video games now, the kids, the kids are doing things in those video games that are unspeakably horrible. Yeah. Let me tell you something. Remember the Texas really bad stuff. Oh, there was something called Nightmare on Elm Street. Did you ever hear of that movie? Nightmare on Elm Street? Yeah. Okay. I got to tell you. I was never a big horror movie fan, so I don't think I ever saw it, but. Well, I never saw it, but I got to tell you a great story. Um, I want to make sure that my computer's stable. Okay. So I was dating the casting director years ago who was casting for the movie, the first movie called Nightmare on Elm Street. I didn't know anything about the movie. I'm sure it was a graphic, violent, gory movie like like a lot of them. So I'm dating the casting director. She sets up a, an audition with the, the, the executive producer. And I had two little lines to say. I think they were, um, he, he, I was supposed to play an officer, a police guy that walks into a bathroom. And, and I walk out and I say, he's in the bathroom puking his guts out. Something like that. Anyway, a simple line. I'm dating the casting director. I got the gig. So I go in uh-huh. to do this inter- this audition. And I, you know, all of a sudden I had this performance anxiety. I got all nervous. This was before I became, you know, the hypnotist guy. And I tried saying that stupid uh-huh. line 10 times and 10 times I flubbed it. <laughs> he, he's in the bathroom puking his brains out. Uh, he's in the he's in the guts puking his bathroom you know i i said it wrong 10 times i didn't get the gig it was just you know a little bid part acting deal and i was dating the casting director why because i had a social nervous anxiety because i went up in front of this person and and i and uh i felt nervous insecure fearful and i flubbed it up see so it's just amazing how our mind can play tricks Mm. on us when we really think about it but getting back to what we're talking about, if I see enough violence and gore, I become desensitized. And what is the object in the military yeah. when the training special ops and the old Green Berets and all these other people? Right. What, what is the goal? The goal is creating full desensitization and separation from the enemy, whatever that enemy is, whether it's a child yeah. with a bomb, a lady... A, a man, but it's to be able to take them out without feeling any physiological, anesthetic, or emotional response. And it works very well um, for most of the the real hardcore military officers. And I love our, our military, and I love the officers, and I respect and honor what they've done to give us a a, a, a democracy. But at the same time, I've also seen the side effects when they get out of that high adrenaline fight and flight war zone mentality and they have to come back to society and they're hooked on drugs and alcohol or or they commit suicide because they can't cope with right. it at that point. So this is the topic, coping. Let's talk about that, coping. No one teaches coping skills in the school. Well, before we, before we move on, let me just ask you a question about that. Do you think that that PTSD and those kinds of uh, trauma disorders are an indication that people still hold on to basic goodness? In other words, they can't quite 
reconcile the the horrible things they've had to do or the th- horrible experiences that they've been through with their sense of what life should be and that you know a, a fully entrained uh, military program would eliminate that sense so that there was no it would basically be co- totally sociopathic that that there would be no sense of regret no sense of uh, having done something wrong and, and I think it it's also has to be said that it's not really a secret that uh, that the military have funded some of these video games that, uh, that they've been developed in uh, in in cooperation with uh, DOD and, and uh, other organizations, other military organizations. So I wonder to what extent they're trying to erase that that basic goodness within some segment of society so that, you know, I know that there's a lot of people who operate drones, for instance, who have uh, PTSD as well, even though they're not on the field in combat, they have a sense of having done something wrong when they hit a target that they know is not necessarily, you know, one of the bad guys. Uh, when there's collateral damage with women and children being killed by these drone strikes. Okay, I'm sorry, but uh, I just have to interject for a moment. I apologize to Tom. I never do this, but it recently came to my attention that a gentleman by the name of Daniel Hale has been sentenced to 45 months in prison for being a whistleblower on the U.S. drone program, which he was an operator in, and uh, where he was ordered to pull the trigger and uh, and is responsible personally for killing young girls. They, you know, that was the one instance that I'd heard about. There may have been other things. I'm sure there were other things that caused him to uh, not be able to live with himself knowing what it was that was going on. And he felt he had to make this information public, even though it went against the uh, the contracts that he had signed as being a member of the military, there's laws and what have you that, that bind people to an oath, and that includes not revealing certain types of secrets and what have you, and he decided that he would rather break that oath than live with the knowledge that he had been complicit in these horrific crimes that have no concern for the sanctity of life or whether or not the targets are accurate targets. It's a really remarkable uh, statement that he made. I'll see if I can find a link to that, and I will also link to a petition. And uh, this is something that I think should be brought to the public's attention. I heard about it on the Scott Horton Show, which I think is an amazing show for people who are interested in staying informed on what's happening around the world. And he's got great, extremely knowledgeable guests on foreign policy and uh, military activity, uh, all different regions of the world. I strongly recommend that people who are interested in trying to understand what's going on in the world keep up to date with the things that are happening. To some extent, just getting some familiarity because you're not going to hear about most of the stuff in the mainstream media. They just don't cover it. Anyway, I wanted to bring that to people's attention. I apologize again to Tom for interrupting this conversation, but it seemed like it was worth having this said. And now we return to the previously scheduled program. Well, let's just call it maybe some form of a latent reaction to what's occurred and what you've done and a realization of it. And, and what, what mm. does uh, addictions and alcoholism and all that stuff, when the, when the military 
retired um, officers or, or, or people active on the front lines, it's, it's as an emotional medicator, band-aid, like anti-anxiety medicine, Prozac, Paxil, uh, all of those things. So, so those are kind of like a mood or emotion blocker. Now, I do believe that certain people uh, come back to society and they're fully functioning. They're really, they're, they're fantastic, you know, human beings, fully functioning in society after they've been in the trauma of war. But I think a high percentage of those people, when they're in that state, when they're in the military and they're in combat, are in such a high adrenaline state, a high amplified um, hypnotic state, that for some, they're able to decompartmentalize the emotional reaction to, to what they are doing. And sometimes it's just the act of survival. And in the act of survival, right. humans will destroy another human being to survive. But also, let's also realize that the, the training of soldiers involves certain forms of hypnosis, certain fo forms of programming, hypnotic suggestion, and, and the reinforcement of, of the training is changing their psyche in that experience. So is it fair to say that, like, can we, if we, can we define hypnosis? Is this, is hypnosis any uh, suggestible state? Is, is that a good way of thinking of it? Well, let's say this. Hypnosis is a state of suggestibility. Now, hypnosis is a subconscious realization of an idea. Now, so let's look at our mind <clears throat> as this activity generator within the organ called the brain. So the mind has all this activity going on. Various activity, unconscious activity is the circulation of blood in the body, um, things that we don't have to be thinking about. People don't have to think about, oh, I better breathe in. Okay, now I can talk. I better exhale. You know, these are certain automatic things that occur, and that's subconscious operating the, the systems, the, um, the, the various external internal nervous systems of the body. But let's also look at now what hypnosis is. Hypnosis is any state of suggestibility is a hypnotic state. Any state of amnesia, meaning lack of awareness of what's going on in the reality at that time, because if I'm, if I'm not aware of what's going on uh, externally, it's because there's too much internal uh, activity going on within my own thoughts is a form of hypnosis. We might even say, you know, I don't have my my book here, my last Chinese book, but my last China book in China, the title was Life is Hypnosis. I think we're going in and out of hypnosis hundreds and thousands of times a day. I think our brainwave patterns and brainwave frequencies are, are changing constantly, continuously. We're going in and out of, of subconscious states, memory states, emotional states, um, states of, 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 of fear, happiness, joy. Uh, so I do think that we are continuously in and out of hypnosis, uh, pr probably tens of thousands of times per day. That's my belief. Huh. Are there any other species that, uh, that are intertwined with the hypnotic state as much as we are, or even a little bit? Well, they're saying certain animals can, can show certain um, emotional states. 
you know, maternal states and things like that. Uh, but I don't think uh, most animals respond out of instinct, out of what we might call um, uh, the fight or flight mechanism. So when an animal kills an animal, it's either to protect their children, the cubs or whatever, or it's for food to survive. But I think we're really probably the only species that has this logic, illogic, reason, analysis prior to the um, action. So is thinking itself a hypnotic state? Well, thinking itself, that's a great question. Boy, I'll tell you all my podcasts, you, you ask the most, seriously, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, you know, trying to make you feel good or whatever. Although the plastic surgery you mentioned on your ass earlier, it really looks fantastic. Um, you were <laughs> talking you, about that. Thank you remember? Okay. I think that anytime our thoughts amplify any type of experience, emotional, interpreted, kinesthetic, anytime our thoughts attach to some experience, memory, or feeling, we're in a hypnotic state. You know, I've never said that before. That's great. I need to put that in my book. I'll have to watch this, <laughs> this podcast. So I think that, and think about it, the act of overthinking. Overthinking is a hypnotic state. See, if I overthink situations, what am I going to do? I'm going to be amplifying some type of emotional response to, the, to those thoughts. And usually the emotional response from an overthinker is a resistance to move ahead in the situation. If I overthink an opportunity enough, I'll figure out a reason why it's not going to work. So I won't attempt the success of even the act of trying. Because the act of doing something different is a success no matter what the, what the outcome of that act is. So the thinking kind of takes on a life of itself and it becomes the primary activity and it's no longer linked to anything actually happening in the world. So you're sort of spinning your wheels, you might say. Well, we're spinning our wheels and we're revving the engine and think about pushing on that accelerator. And as I'm revving right. the engine, that means I'm stirring up the emotions and I might be romancing and manipulating the pain. How many times do, you know, and we're all part of this. I've done it too myself where all of a sudden you're just feeling bad and you don't know why you're feeling bad, but yet you're staying in that zone of feeling bad. So there's some reason why you're holding on to that emotion. But when you realize that life is a continuum of changes, of cells, of reality, of nature, um, in a microsecond moment, that all these feelings and we're experiences will pass. Everything passes, just like a cloud in the sky will, will pass. You know, but if I hold on to it, then I live in the pain of a reality that for some reason there is some, I won't call it a benefit, but there's some reason why I want to hold on to that pain. And maybe it's because I want to, I want to feel guilty about something I've done, like maybe the, the military people or whatever, or somebody hitting their child or punishing their dog or whatever. Maybe that that's that certain amount of guilt. I feel I have to take on. How many people, you know, are programmed to feel guilty, guilt, 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 you know, about ev everything and anything. So what is guilt? Guilt is is an is right. an emotional is a hypnotic amplifier. Fear is a hypnotic amplifier. Anger is a hypnotic amplifier. But hmm. being in a in a neutral state, being in a neutral state, and we can call that a Zen state of mind that these are all experiences around me, 
but I don't have to interpret all of these experiences. So if I'm in a non-interpretive state, then I'm in a true state of meditation in conscious reality. I don't have to just be in one area and meditate, although most people don't really know the, the full act of, of meditation, which is experience without interpreting the experience. It's a neutral state. I think the most healthiest state of mind to be in is neutral towards everything, neutral towards the experiences that are happening around us. Absolutely. Amen. I'm, I'm, I'm a hundred percent on board with that. Uh, this is a theme in, in the podcast quite often. Uh, we, get to the point in some ways I, I think you could say this is an assembly of silence moment uh in the past uh when i began this podcast we would have a little reverb chamber that we would open up and make some ambient noises when you'd kind of hit that moment where there was nothing else to say i'm not saying we don't have anything else to say right now but uh, we're always coming back to this kind of uh empty mind there's a bunch of different traditions that uh, cultivate that that see the cultivation of the of the empty mind as the goal uh, my previous guest, Sam Vaknin, uh, professor of psychology, he uh, refers to it as nothingness, which is a, a slightly different, the way he uh, defines it is slightly different from some of the traditions. But nevertheless, it's in the same ballpark where we're talking about getting control over the fluctuations within the mind. And maybe control is not even the right word. It's kind of uh, uh, it's, a, it's a neutral control. It's, it's an acceptance and a uh, distancing from the involvement in the mind fluctuations, because the mind fluctuations just keep going, although they will eventually kind of settle down. And it's interesting to, to come to the realization that there are so many different techniques and that hypnotism is, is one of them. Hypnotism is a technique that gets us embroiled in these fluctuations, but it can also be something that could relieve us from these fluctuations. And particularly for those of us who are interested in this problem, I think a lot of people come to the intellectual understanding that this is the direction they need to go, but being able to really take that step and being able to really uh, relieve yourself of the burden of the thoughts and the feelings is quite often more than people can handle. And so something like hypnotism might be a way of helping people to take that first step. And But again, we come down to this trust issue, I think is a huge thing about you know, whoever it is that you're going to take this journey with. And it's not just a hypnotist. If you're going to go to a, a meditation teacher or anything like that, all of these things are, are, are also fraught with all kinds of problems. There's a long tradition of gurus taking advantage of their disciples and what have you. And uh, so it, it's, it's a tricky thing and people should be careful. But it seems like, yes, there are a number of ways of approaching this. And if you can find someone who you can place your faith in, then you can maybe get the assistance you would need in order to follow the path. Well, and think about it. Hypnotherapy is such a wonderful, beautiful science. It's been going on in a uh, medical environment uh, for over 250 years. All of the hypnotists, um, which were in the old days, it was called mesmerism and magnetism, just like Anton Mesmer, mesmerized. Anton Mesmer was a, a French physician. And he did a lot of work in Europe and Vienna and things like that. In fact, he was close friends with Mozart. Oh, really? Mozart composed the first glass harmonica. Do you know what a glass harmonica is? It's uh, uh, basically glasses filled with water that you, uh, that you spin your finger on the rim, right? Well, no, a glass harmonica, that, that, that is a form of one. 
I don't like to say no. That is a form of one. <laughs> but the glass harmonica was a keyboard instrument that had different cut-shaped pieces of glass, and a little hammer would hit that glass. It was probably crystal, and and it would resonate and create a huh. a tone, a sound. And so um, Mesmer was an expert at at playing the glass harmonica. Benjamin Franklin owned the glass harmonica, and he also he also advanced the technology and fine tuned that that uh, musical instrument. And in the in the uh, I think there's a Benjamin Franklin museum somewhere in um, Philadelphia um, near the Liberty Bell, and they still have that glass harmonica. But Mesmer was close friends with Mozart and and also Marie Antoinette. And uh, Mozart composed the first glass harmonica composition and performed it live in Mesmer's home for a group of close friends. So it's really interesting. But the history of hypnosis is it was accepted by the medical faculty hundreds of years ago. Uh, Alfred Binet was an amazing um, hypnotist and, and also neurologist and, and worked in Charcot's hospital in, in Europe, the Saint-Petri Hospital in France. Uh, Dr. Bernheim and LeBolt had the Nancy School and they also had hypnosis clinics. And uh, you think about John Elliotson. John Elliotson wrote an amazing book on, on, on um, uh, human physiology. And John Elliotson had in his hospital an area where he, where he conducted hypnosis sessions on clients with tremendous results, removing hysteria, um, hysterical blindness and paralysis, and also doing some amazing, amazing things. Charles Dickens was a mesmerist. Charles Dickens loved oh, Really? Wow. Oh, yeah. He almost <laughs> left the field of writing to pursue healing. He was a healer. He used to do remote. He used to do remote hypnosis. In other words, he'd work with somebody, a patient in, in somewhere in Europe or wherever, and he'd be out with his wife, you know, doing a tour. And at certain times, he would put himself into a kind of hypnotic trance state and hypnotize his his patient um, hundreds of miles away. But one time he huh. was doing, he was in this auto trance state, and his wife was on top of the carriage, you know, the hot horse drawn carriage. And she collapsed into hypnosis. She went unconscious, huh. and it and it created disturbance. So she uh, basically, you know, read him the riot riot act. Either stop that practice, or or I'm going to leave you. And so he kind of disassociated it. Lafayette, um, really? Uh, yeah. Uh, think about it. Uh, that great revolutionary fighter, um, French fighter of the revolution. Um, I'm trying to think of his name offhand. Uh, I can't think of his name, was also into mesmerism. So hypnosis was an accepted science for, for many years. And it was called many different names. Let's check out these cool names. Uh, electrobiology, it was called back in the mid-1800s in America, 1850s and 60s. So it's always had the electrical connection. Electrical biology, yeah. And in the early 1900s yeah. and late 1800s, it was called suggestive therapeutics. And it was used for many to help overcome many physical and neurological disorders. So it's really an amazing science. And I think the key is, is your education. 
What type of understanding and education are people getting in the field of hypnotism? It's, it's great for stopping smoking, losing weight, removing fears and phobias. I've been a clinical hypnotherapist for 37 years, but if I was still conducting the techniques that I learned back in the mid 80s from this institute and school that I attended for a full year and did a residency internship program, if I was still doing their methodologies, I'd, I'd be back in the back in the dark ages because hmm. I, throughout all these years, have been a tester, and, and that's like a scientist. I was trying to crack the code of really what hypnosis is because the hypnotists say the word sleep, but hypnosis isn't sleep. Sleep is a state of getting into an unconscious state to, to where we dream uh, we go through various uh, stages of dreaming, precognitive, wishful thinking, venting dreams. Uh, so words that are being used still in the field of hypnotism are incorrect. I'm working on changing mm. the linguistical communication of hypnosis. Hypnosis is a neurophysiological mm. science. And let's face it, what goes on in our mind uh, creates a reaction within our bodies. And, and I think that the understanding of hypnosis is is proving that it's being more accepted into medical science, into the hospitals. Did you know that the Mayo brothers, the people that created the Mayo Clinic, in the early 1900s, people were dying of, of, of a reaction to anesthesia. And anesthesia, chemical anesthesia was created around 1850s and 1860s around then. There was a French, there, there was a doctor named Dr. Airsdale, James Airsdale. He was a British surgeon and he joined the East Indies Company and went to Cal went to India, and he he taught his his helpers or assistants how to mesmerize, how to hypnotize the patients to lower their blood uh, the blood circulation in their body, to also lower physical sensitivity, what we call pain, and he performed some amazing surgeries without the patients bleeding to death or dying of extreme pain. And that's why a lot of patients died before anesthesia is because the pain was so strong, it shut down, it shut down their heart or they bled out wow. so much that um, the excessive bleeding killed them. But he came back to, um, to England with this discovery. And at that point, chemical uh, anesthesia was created, anesthetics. And that, that is a pain medicine, an opioid, and some type of sleep meds. And so they basically denounced all his work in creating a comfortable state of doing surgery without the experience because he was able to put a person into a receptive hypnosis and control the various aspects of the nervous system, which I find astounding. So hypnosis kind of went into the dark ages with Sigmund Freud. I don't know why he denounced hypnosis because he had a gentleman uh, that used to teach hypnosis. Franz Polgar used to teach and do hypnosis experiments uh, in Sigmund Freud's classrooms. But Sigmund Freud denounced hypnosis because it wasn't a, a, a one formula works for every human being. Because hypnosis has right. to be personalized what your goals are and what those words mean to you and how those words or emotions have affected your current reality in your life. But hypnosis is an amazing science and field. Did you know that the American Medical Association, Psychological Association, and Dental Association all officially recognized 
hypnosis back in the 1950s, official recognition of hypnosis. And after World War II, uh, the United States brought in various um, suggestive therapists, hypnotists, uh, that were able to work with some of the soldiers to remove the the experiences of, of the pains or the wounds, as well as to work on removing PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So I love hypnosis, mm. but it's got to be utilized by people who understand it and are trained correctly and then are not using it as, as predators, as manipulators, as deceptors and deceiving people. Um, and I think that's where we have a problem in the morality of who learns hypnosis and what is the purpose and the mindset of the hypnotist when they're working with somebody. Is it pure? Is it good? Mm -hmm. Or is it for an ulterior motive or something that's that's negative? Do you have any uh, any uh, suggestions on how people might interview, might uh, try to assess someone uh, that they're considering working with? Well, absolutely. You have to look at somebody's history uh, because there's a lot of people calling themselves. Now the new new click word is I'm a master hypnotist. You know, I'm a, I'm, I'm, I got my, I'm a master uh, energy changer, reflexologist, or angel. You know, I, I can bring angels into your life. Whatever, whatever the deal is. I mean, everybody's a, a, a master or a coach. You know, it's like the, it's like the business of teaching. It's not the business of, of, of teaching people how to operate and integrate their minds correctly. It's not the, the business of, of, of being there to, to. Teach your client how to delete the the emotions of the events out of their past, like like throw them into a trash bin and erase it, and empower them to make other changes in their lives. But many people now are becoming teachers of hypnosis without life experience. Can you imagine what it would be like if someone went through medical school and now they're teaching surgery, uh, brain surgery, but yet they've never had a history and track record of of working with patients? You know, I mean, right. it, that's a scary part about it is through the sizzle of marketing and promotion, you have no idea who's really a quality person, a quality therapist, right. or that has I think moralities and ethics. So I think it's important that, that you do check out people's backgrounds or histories or get or find out um, uh, uh, if they can give you a list of people they've worked with that you can contact them. So real clinical experience. It seems like this type of thing is happening in a lot of different fields where, you know, the experts are people who just got a bunch of uh, degrees to their name and didn't really spend much time in the field. Right. You know, and, like, and and the hypnotist actually has to know what hypnosis is as its relationship to science. And I think when, when I'm talking sleep and trance and, I, and hypnosis, you know, I, I had a lady that wanted to do a session. She lived in New York. So she checked out one of the organizations. There are these different various hypnosis organizations, uh, National Guild of Hypnotists, all these different organizations that people belong to. But guess what? If I pay a certain amount of money, I can have that certificate. The certificate doesn't mean anything. I can have a wall of certificates, but I could have paid for every one of those certificates. Do you know that there has been people selling doctorates of hypnosis certificates uh, on eBay? I mean, you know, you got to really do your due huh. diligence. It's like right. me when, when I'm dealing, you know, working with, with cancer, yeah. with my experiences with cancer, with myself, I just couldn't just 
choose anybody who claimed to be doing something or claimed to be an expert. I need to I needed to do the research to find the very best practitioners to give me the highest quality and percentage of success in the outcome. And I think that's really important in the field of hypnosis. And, and I think that that training in academic scientific neurophysiological hypnosis is the only way. That's what I teach around the world. I teach neurofeedback, brainwave frequency monitoring devices through scientific medical diagnostic tools called electroencephalograph neurofeedback. Uh, biofeedback measures the galvanic skin response in the body. I teach how, how the thoughts can affect and change the sympathetic, parasympathetic, autonomic nervous systems. And I think that, that it's about time that we raise the educational standards of hypnosis. The challenge is every school teaches their own theories, and some of those theories are archaic, antiquity, and, antiquity and, and not even accurate. You know, and I think we need mm. to move into a higher technological uh, advancement in scientific academic hypnosis. And, and I think that's also some of the challenges that the methods that worked in the 1890s for the good doctors need to be refined. Medical science gets refined. Why not mental science, right. hypnosis science? Be refined and put and advanced into the technological society. That's why I look at our mind as a dual processing computer. Our thoughts are like the RAM, like the screen of mind. But our thoughts, if I'm affected by my thoughts, then I'm accessing the hard drive in my dual processing computer. And if I'm accessing that hard drive and I bring up a defective program with malware, a mental virus that's gonna affect my quality of life, then I need to either find some type of hypnosis technologists to delete that virus, or I need to learn how to do it myself. And I think if you teach people how to operate their minds and teach them the right tools and the right methodologies, that we can create a real healthy society of people that are no longer uh, affected by various negative events or activity. And they can actually be able to defragment their own subconscious biocomputers. I think that's that's mm. really the whole power, teaching people how to operate a clear, a precise, a positive mindset. And, and then there's no obstacles or barriers to stand in the way of your quality of life, your healthy immune system, your body vitality, and your desire to, to move ahead and enjoy the adventure of living life to the fullest. So why do you call it a dual processor? Well, because... We have our thoughts. That's the weakest part of our mind, our thoughts. But our thoughts are like the, the trigger to the emotions in our subconscious. And, and I looked at the subconscious mind, the lower activity within the brain is mm. the storehouse, the powerhouse of the strength of the dual processing computer. So I look at all these uh, habits, addictions, uh, whatever you want to call them, uh, belief systems, mm as various neuro software programs that are programmed into that hard drive and they need to be deleted, removed, detached and neutralized in order for, for us to be free of the effects of them. If I'm still affected by the things of the past, that means the emotions are, are nine times stronger than our logic and reason. Emotions will always beat out because the emotions stimulate cravings. 
The thought of not drinking right. is bringing, uh, I won't drink today. What am I saying? I won't drink today. What is the weak words? I won't. What is the power word? Drink today. So the more <laughs> I think about not drinking today, the more I'm stimulating in my subconscious the craving of wanting to drink. The more the craving gets stronger, the more it's affecting my nervous system. I'm feeling a pre-anticipatory expectation of the act of drinking or doing a drug. And that then becomes more powerful than any conscious resistance. So you see the uh, emotional realm as being part of the subconscious? Is that is that the way it's kind of being mapped out? Yeah, I, I see the emotional realm as totally being part of the area of consciousness that's below the frontal lobal area. And that's the subconscious, where the limbic system is, where the hypothalamic limbic mm. system is, where where the hypothalamus is located. And I think that emotions, emotions create neurochemical changes within the brain that move through our central nervous system, which is the electrical transmitter of our nerve force into our body. And so I think mm. I think emotions could be you know fantastic if it's the right emotions. But I think uh, I think negative mind activity and strong negative emotions could be detrimental, dangerous, and deadly. To, to the human body and to our quality of life, personally. And so mm -hmm. we also have something called the law of reverse reaction. And that, let me give you that, that, that theory. The harder I try, the more difficult it becomes. And let me give you an analogy that every one of us human beings can relate to, and possibly yourself too, Noah. And that is trying to force yourself to go to sleep at night. <laughs> I totally relate to that one. Yeah. So you're, you're, you have a busy day coming up. And you're in bed and you're thinking, I got to sleep, I got to sleep. So the more I'm trying to sleep, the more I'm amplifying my nervous system, the more I'm stimulating adrenaline and stress hormones and cortisols and um, uh, all of the, those things. And the more I'm trying to sleep, the more I'm, I am staying awake. The harder I try, the more difficult it becomes. And this brings you back to the Eastern philosophy. Um, and that is to be free of clouds to have a clear mind, but also to be like water. And water moves into everything mm. easily, naturally, without resistance. So if I can remove whatever the resistance is in my life, then I am gonna enable myself to have a better quality of life. And listen to what medical doctors say after surgery, get plenty of rest and relaxation. So what are they saying? They're saying decompress that sympathetic nervous system that spikes up when we're feeling emotion or stress or worry or anxiety or fear or anger or depression. And, and, and when you de-amplify that part of the nervous system, then you replenish the sympathetic nervous system, which is the healing nervous system mm -hmm. of being in a relaxed state. So when I learn aspects of conscious waking relaxation, the freedom of, of what I choose to interpret and accept in my reality and what I see and don't believe is the truth, even in my thoughts or things around me, when I can detach from negative and just stay attached to whatever is a positive effect or a positive experience, then I, I'm, uh, then, then I am having a better quality of life. And at the same time, I am free of the toxins within my body. I detox my body. I get into a state of, of, of a natural state instead of a denatured state. 
meaning I'm taking mm. the natural ability of my life force and I am removing or interfering with that natural ability of my life force. That is my birthright. So let's, let's, uh, there's one aspect of this that I, I've thought about uh, when it comes to these kinds of practices to return to the present, to free ourselves of the mental imagery, the mind objects, you know, the, 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 the clear mind kind of goal. It seems like, you know, if we take it in its purest form, there's, uh, some concern perhaps as to what would happen in society like society in some ways is is held together through anxieties and and like the thing we we're talking about before about guilt you know so we we've all uh, in the course of our lives done things that we would that we wish we hadn't done and and guilt is sort of a, a mechanism for leading us away from continuing to do those kinds of things right and if you fully embrace the point of view where there is no mind object, there is no attachment to what was done prior, what is there to prevent people from just continuing to do the terrible stuff? You know, like uh, it's, it's easy to see how people might even use this pure technique as a way of relieving themselves from any sense of obligation to anyone for anything. You know, and and so society, it seems to me, has some built-in anxieties and and some of these pressures because we need people to have limits on their behavior. And so, when we eliminate all the restraints, it's quite possible that that we would have an extraordinarily chaotic society. So, what would you say to that perspective? Well, I would say that again, we're talking extreme. We're not talking balance. Stress is, right. stress is good. A certain amount of stress is great. A certain amount of fear is great. If I didn't have, if I didn't have any fear, then what's to prevent me from stepping too far off that cliff and falling down into the abyss of the rocks and the ocean? So those those emotions are all part of our survival mechanism in life. But it's creating a balance of those and not an extreme where the extreme becomes our reality. And when you talk about guilt, you know, guilt is unresolved emotional conflict from the past. Let's face it. I'm not guilty about something that hasn't happened yet, am I? Two weeks from now, I'm going to feel guilty about something I haven't done? No, that's not guilt. That's just <laughs> negative imagination towards the future. But guilt is an unresolved emotional um, disturbance from the past. So if I learn from the guilt of what I did in the past, the lesson I can learn is not to repeat the, the things that I did in the past that created the guilt to learn from that experience and not be emotionally attached to an experience that has occurred in the past. But if I want to feel guilt and sorrow, I can live, I can live in a, a, a an amazing painful party for the rest of my life. I could, I right. could take on, I might as well take on all the wounds and pains of the world of everybody who, who got murdered, uh, innocent people who got murdered by vicious, you know, killers. But the fact is, these are unresolved events. And whether they're real or imagined, there's still, there's still life to them because there's an emotional attachment to them. But if I learn... Well, it's also, 
there's also the implantation of the seed idea that that one would be has violated in in the guilt. So you know, quite often you'll talk about uh, having a a set of beliefs, and it's because one has digressed and violated some of those beliefs that one feels guilty. Then you can excavate the question as well. Are those beliefs real? You know, who put them there? Are they true? Uh, you know, and, and I would say, well, you know, this is where things get tricky because uh, on some fundamental level, there is a, a certain amount of arbitrariness to some of these basic beliefs. But again, you know, where would we be as a species without some basic sense of goodness? Well, uh, and I think it's really important that 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 people get cultivated with a sense of goodness, and that's perhaps one of the things that's really missing right now. But that's also, I think, what upsets people when they go through life and they realize, oh, I wasn't the good person in this situation, you know. So, so there's a, there's a lot of lot of contradiction and tension, and and the more you excavate it, the more it's like, well, where what's the ground here? What are how do we find this this middle ground? Okay, well, let's look at it this way. Maybe a little bit of guilt is, is okay. I think things in, in low dosages yeah. can still be beneficial. If I feel a little <laughs> right. guilty about something I've done in the past, well, maybe that's a catalyst not to do it again. Maybe that's my lesson not yeah, to do it again. It depends because, what you did. Right. You I'm know, just, like I'm, some people magnify their transgressions so, so that they're like uh, ultimate sins, and other people, you know, they sort of lessen the the volume on uh, what might be a pretty serious transgression. Right, and it's you know, it's your personal interpretation of the intensity of the events of the past that either affect yeah. you or move you ahead. Um, but but the and and let's face it, um, my wife was raised Catholic, and. and She's pretty darn Mine good too. at accepting and receiving guilt and transmitting yeah. guilt. I was raised Jewish, you know, and my mom was pretty good at, at teaching me how to throw out guilt and how to take in guilt, you know. So um, so anything in a in anything that's not extreme can be beneficial. But when you said something very important. Uh, again, I'm a hypnotherapist. If anyone wants to contact me, tomsilver.com. I'm not giving you a plug, but I am giving me a plug, whatever. But the bottom line yeah, is... That's part of what you're here to do, yeah. Well, and I'll, I'll make sure that the links are in the show notes description too. So yeah, okay, good. we'll, have, but, we'll but, have links there and up on the screen too. Let's talk about one thing because, you know, I've done a lot of forensic hypnosis work. I worked with the Taiwan Department of Defense in 1997 and 1999 on the biggest weapons procurement scandal in, in murder in Taiwan and French history, $2.8 billion weapons scandal, murder of Captain Yin, Navy procurement officer found dead with his head crushed in, halfway crushed in in the ocean, purchased the defective battleships with defective artillery from France, and, and money laundered in South Africa and Switzerland. And, and I think 12 people have already had mysterious deaths from this big... Um, international weapons crime and scandal and murder. I wrote a book on it about my life, Kill the Hypnotist. I hypnotized the prisoners against their will to get the truth out of them. And then also created a human lie detector tied into their central nervous system, the finger of truth, and actually taught the, the government how to ask non-leading questions to be able to uh, bring out the, the true information in a non-emotional state using regression 
using a form of regression back to the events. But the fact is, uh, and I also had them go back to a time period in their life and remember something that occurred in their current life or in their past life, since 97% of them are Buddhist. And if they were Buddhists, then they believe in, in reincarnation. So, um, hmm. but I'm bringing up an interesting point. I'm not just telling the story just to talk about the story. I'm bringing up the story to talk about regression therapy, bringing some body back to the past and having him relive that event in the past. And that brings me to the, the uh, thought of memory. Most memory of events in our past that might have made us feel good or made us feel guilty or sad, most memory has been distorted, magnified, amplified, imagined, created, or repressed. So almost everything that we remember from our past has already had some form of contamination depending on what has happened to us in our current reality and what we put into the mix when we remember the events of the past. Will you, uh, do you agree or disagree with that? Absolutely. 100%. Me you know, memory is to a large extent a fiction. And of course, the, some fiction is more uh, fantastic than others. That, that actually bring, brings up a question. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Kill a Hypnotist is written as a book of fiction. Is, is that right? Uh, no. Kill the Hypnotist. My old, that's my old stage show. My old stage hypnosis photo. Look at that. Uh-huh. <laughs> that that's the classic image of the hypnotist, right? Yeah. And and, and okay, so the question is like, are you so, gonna feel so, comfortable going under the the gaze? You know, like well, <laughs> right? yeah. because let's face it, hypnosis has always kind of been put in that same category as as brainwashing, is Dracula. Dracula exactly their blood. Yeah. It's almost like you need to come up with another word, right? I mean, if you really want to distinguish yourself from the field, it seems like maybe the maybe there needs to be a new term applied well, to this. Yeah. Because you, you are using the equipment. Like I, I know that the 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 uh, brain scanning technology, I can't remember what it what which particular one you use, but you can see uh, uh, very clearly when someone goes into a hypnotic state when you're using that equipment, right? So there's no question that there's a completely different state of mind when, when someone goes into hypnosis. Right. So you have two facets. You either change the word again and try to re-educate people like, like, someone right. came, yeah. like, like, like someone came up with the words neuro-linguistic programming, NLP. Well, guess what? NLP is nothing but hypnosis. I don't give a darn what the hell you call it. It's just hypnosis huh. with, a new, with a new name. It's the same Interesting. flavor. It was derived from Milton Erickson, who was a hypnotist and psychologist. But yet it was a word that did not already have a, a, a inference that was not, not or that was already right. taken out of the fear zone. That's why I put this. And on. if I'm not because this, if I'm not mistaken, NLP is huge, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's 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 really huge. taken off. Huge. But yeah. what is NLP? NLP is a form of manipulation of people when you think about yes. nlp very explicit it, it is it is mirroring leading pacing i mean i could be wearing the same you know um gangbanger hat you're on and the glasses and the earphones i could be looking just <laughs> like you and, and if i'm doing that then what am i doing i'm mirroring you if i if i if i get to your same body language and you shake your head and i shake my hand I'm creating, I'm sinking in a rapport of, of who you are. There, I'm doing it again. So, so but yep. the bottom line is, 
it's mechanical, it's set up, and it's usually set up for manipulation. Now, right. what I was told by people very close to the creation of NLP, people who were the creators of NLP, besides a guy named Richard Bandler and Grindler and those kinds of people who have monopolized it and made millions of dollars off it, that the creator, one of the creators was in a big lawsuit because one morning his girlfriend, who was in, in the apartment with him and his other colleague, was found dead of a drug overdose. So he uh, used, the story was he used NLP in court to get away with murder, you know? So uh, it, when you, and, and there's a lot of people in the field in the early days of, of NLP. Um, and again, I'm just telling you what, what I've heard talking to people that part of NLP was created to sexually manipulate women manipulation oh boy all right so so the, the fact is sure nlp is taught all over the world people are making a lot of money and they have a you get an nl nlp certification then you take it to your NL, advanced nlp course then you're doing your master's trainers nlp course so now you're teaching nlp without even utilizing the science now one of the creators of nlp who lives in the ukraine who i've spoken to many times frank Kusilik is one of the true creators of the meta system, NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, told me that we they needed to come up with a name when they were in the university and they were working on this, this kind of restructure of Erickson, Milton Erickson's methodologies. And they came up with Neuro Linguistic Programming. He said they, we came up with this kind of like a joke because it sounded real formal and medical and scientific. But he said it caught on right. so big we couldn't change the name because it, it like caught on like like wildfire, neurolinguistic programming. He's also told That's me interesting. That he, I gotta finish this one other yeah, thing. The, the, he, he also told yep. me that what people are teaching NLP isn't the true formula of NLP, but it's been altered and contaminated and changed. So if something now becomes altered, contaminated, and changed, what's the quality of the of the methods that are being taught out there? And now a trainer's teaching right. it, and they're also altering it. Go ahead. Right. And it's unavoidable. It seems like no matter what it is that's put out there, you have the same problem in martial arts where, you know, you have a lineage. And, you know, it, it, some people have said that basically the development of martial arts was one person changing the thing that they learned from their master, you know, and the, it, against the, the you had the resistance of trying to stay true to whatever it was that was originally taught, but it would eventually change and it always eventually does. But it's very true that quite often it doesn't change in a way that's that's particularly good. You know, so, for instance, I studied Tai Chi Chuan. And uh, my teacher was always talking about how terrible what, you know, what had happened to Taiji Chuan since uh, it came to the United States, for instance, you know, because originally he studied in Taiwan. All of his teachers were from the mainland. When they brought it to the United States, they recognized that people weren't going to be able to put it in the time in order to do it the, the traditional way. And so they watered it down, and made it, well, marketable. You know, and it sounds like in many respects, well, what NLP did is they tailored themselves to the marketplace, which was basically like, how do I make a sale? How do I convince people to do what I want them to do in order for me to rise up in the in, in the ranks and this, right. that way, whatever the business was. Right. You know, there's something interesting about the language, though. Like, you know, I've heard you refer to the process uh, as 
well, you have kind of a deprogramming aspect, right? And then you have a reprogramming aspect. So the the the, the programming thing, the the sort of uh, computer model, if you like, is is something that's very enticing, and it makes a lot of sense because you have these these processes that are running around in your head. And you need to kind of disable them before you can implant a new process, right? Uh, so maybe that would be something would be, I'd love to hear more about because it, it seems like such a fundamental concept. Right. Well, you know, I've been a neurological technologist for over 37 years. See, I've already changed the name. What do you think? Yeah, neurological technologist. Yeah, I'm a neuro, I've, been a, I've been a certified <laughs> neurotechnologist for over 37 years. And in the mind technology that I institute in the various processes that I teach my recipients and clients to experience, I have found a tremendous change within their whole physiology and neurology to empower them to actually have a higher quality of life and their effectiveness of being able to continuously program and reprogram their thought structures and patterns to fit their mode of operation and reality. So here I just said a whole So thing. that's something really interesting too. That 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 because you know what you're saying basically like the 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 model most people would think of with hypnosis is that the hypnotist is going to be the one who changes your mind. But what you're saying is I'm going to teach you to change your own mind so that you can be aware of what's going on and you can figure out which are the programs that you're running that need to be deleted and what you know kind of techniques you might use in order to have a better program running. Is that correct? Yeah, that's how I teach the science of hypnosis. And now if I say that's how I teach the science of hypnosis, I've already elevated hypnosis into a different level because I'm combining it with the word science. It is a neuroscience, but absolutely. Almost every hypnotist out there and trained in hypnosis, you know, has the audacity and the ego and the self-centeredness to think I am doing it to you. I'm you, you know, you're my subject. You know, they call them subjects, mm -hmm. you know, like like the mm -hmm. king and queen, my loyal subjects. <laughs> right. you know? There's a certain amount of arrogance that occurs in this field. A lot of big egos in the field of hypnotism. Believe me, I've been attacked by some of the biggest hypnotists in the world. Uh, and that's what happens when you get yeah. out there and you get known for what you do. You tend to get attacked and and and, and try, they try to discredit you. You know, it just happens in the world of competition, although I'm only competing with right. myself. And I'm not even competing with myself. I'm trying to be a little better today than I was yesterday. But it's true. The fact is, I am teaching the client or recipient if you're a medical doctor, I can say patient, I am teaching them how to alter their own neurochemistry, their own state of consciousness. I am teaching them to be able to go into hypnosis themselves by simply following a certain amount of instructions and techniques that I will present to them in various mental or physical exercises or methodologies. But most hypnotherapists like to feel that they are doing it to you. And, and I think right. that's a big mistake because people want to be involved in the curative healing and positive effects in their own life. The more I can integrate yeah. your involvement and we work as a team together, the higher the success rate will be in you reaching your own goals. I'm not saying in me right. reaching, giving you your own goals. And that's why I always make a contact with my client. 
I'm here to teach you how to operate your mind effectively, successfully. I want you to follow a simple set of instructions and directions I'm going to give you. Do everything I ask you instantly, easily, and automatically without thinking. Take your, your conscious mind uh, and just put it in the corner of the room. Let it drift in thoughts. It doesn't matter what you're thinking, but allow yourself to learn how to go into hypnosis today as we work together as a team. See how I just worded that? Do I have your agreement? I'll make a contract with my client. And it's true. Some people say all hypnosis is self-hypnosis. Why not, why not just say that when I'm working as an operator with a client, I'm working as a teacher to teach them how to alter their state of consciousness and to access their subconscious biocomputer to remove and delete maybe negative habits, emotions, or experiences that have stood in the way of their quality of life, and to be able to download a new operating system, a new belief system that will empower them to be the best they can be in every year of their life. Well, that sounds like a great measure for uh, trying to, if you're trying to find someone to work with, if they're going to empower you to have the technique to improve your life, well, that's really what you're looking for. And that would filter out the control freaks who are attracted to this type of a field, right? Well, absolutely. So I, I think that's that's a beautiful way of of uh, of, of drawing some, some lines there and, and getting a sense of how to figure out who to work with. Right. And the hypnotherapist should know about um, brainwave frequency, activation or deactivation. The hypnotherapists need to know about the various states of consciousness, semi-consciousness, and what we might call responsiveness or unconsciousness. And that is the beta, alpha, theta, and delta states. And so they really should be educated in the various brainwave activities that represent stimulation or destimulation in various areas within the brain, within the organ, in what we call the activity within the full realm of consciousness. You know, when I did the brainwash show on Discovery Channel years ago, proving that the Manchurian candidate where somebody can be programmed to commit a horrific crime can occur and it can occur very easily. And I know that for a fact. It was really important in that show to work with scientific academic people, licensed psychologists, forensic psychologists, and neuroscientists. But I had a neuroscientist on that show from England who said there is no, that the subconscious mind does not exist. There is no difference between the subconscious and conscious. And, and I, the more I pioneer and, and move ahead in, in activity, uh, awareness, and understanding of what operates, what's going on within the mind, I will tend to agree with that person, that the subconscious is only really, an, is, is the word only represents an area of the brain that is active at that point. So it's the conscious is the upper part of brainwave activity, which is the intellectual part of the mind, analytical part of the mind. And the subconscious represents all of the activity that is below consciousness. And so medical doctors create a state of unconsciousness, meaning if I can shut off interpreted process, then I'm shutting off even the experience of pain. And that's what anesthesia does. But we also have to look at what is the unconscious. And the unconscious is the automatic operation of the, of the activity within the brain that is creating a direct relationship activity into the physiology of the body. 
meaning that I am not consciously controlling uh, my heart for beating. I, I can't sit there and say, okay, heart, right. stop beating. So there's also a distinction between the the uh, subconscious routines that were there from the beginning, like the beating of the heart, and the subconscious routines that we learned, like uh, driving a car, for instance. So you, you really don't think about driving until like there's some kind of reason to do so, right? But when you're learning it, you're thinking about it. So there, there's some kind of an interesting relationship between the the conscious is a way of being able to, well access the subconscious or implant something into the subconscious. So it seems like that would be a, a pretty helpful aspect to know when you're doing uh, retrainment, when you're trying to reprogram yourself, because that, that repetition, if you're a musician, right, you're practicing something so that you don't have to think about it so much when you're actually playing it again. And that seems to be one of the tools in the toolbox for, for changing behaviors that are uh, embedded. Yeah, you said something very powerful, and that's important. Um, yeah, when we're driving, when we learn how to drive, there's a strong desire to want to drive. Most people aren't gonna aren't thinking, well, hell, I gotta drive. I mean, I gotta leave my parents and I gotta hang with my friends and uh, and and go out to parties. I don't want to. Most people, when they learn how to drive, there's a strong desire to want to drive. So that strong desire to want to drive already created an, an emotional state of receptiveness for wanting to drive because I was excited about driving. After a while, after learning how to drive and going through the primary basic uh, experiences of driving, like riding a bike, pretty soon it becomes second nature. Pretty soon it becomes, we're gonna call it, um, we're gonna call it muscle and mind memory. So I don't have to think about it. And, and we develop certain natural reflex responses, reflex reactions. So I'm driving my car and I'm thinking about work or thinking about that nice girl I want to date or or like the secret, which never told you anything about really what the secret was. But they told they sold a, a, the, the movie called The Secret. And just imagine you're driving a car with a beautiful blonde. And you got that fifty thousand dollar car and now you got it um, without having to do any uh, action. I think thoughts without action are just thoughts. But when you have a reflex response. That means it's already now in your instincts, in your natural reactional state. So I'm driving a car. I'm thinking about work. All of a sudden, some some kid runs into the street. I don't even have to think about it, but I'll swerve, the, I'll, I'll turn the wheel, or I'll hit the brakes because I've already created a spontaneous automatic response reaction. And and I think that's really important when we think about life. How many times do we have spontaneous automatic response reactions? That might be negative, you know, just like positive. And right. when we think about muscle memory, let's think about more than just muscle memory, like the old cowboys that can just take their gun out and they can, someone could throw a coin out and they don't have to look and they just shoot it. We also have neuro memory. We have mind memory of, of, of the learning that then becomes automated and it goes into automation. But it's been reinforced. Think about negative habits. I can give you, say you don't drink. I stopped drinking alcohol 13 years ago, thanks to my higher power and thanks to 12-step programs and doing the work and being ready to make a change. If I can do it, you can do it, folks. The fact is, when you think about the repetition of an action or a thought will reinforce that action or thought, 
that will either override a new behavior or pattern or create a brand new one. I can take somebody who maybe they just drink a glass of wine once in a while, and every night at seven o'clock in the evening, I can direct them to drink two glasses of wine within, say, a minute. Whether they like it or not, I can have them do that and repeat that pattern for about three weeks. You know what I've done? I've created an alcoholic state. See, so so habits that re- become repeated all of automatically after a certain amount of repetitions become automated, automatic. They become a behavior. And whether that's positive or negative, the repetition of that behavior will create the end result of that behavior being programmed into your mind. It's like some uh, athlete that all of a sudden, you know, they, they, they go to hit the ball and they miss it. And all of a sudden it creates this, this thought in their mind, this uh, block, this, this sports block or mental block. So then every time they're set up in that situation again, they're in that triggered state, that emotion comes up and they repeat the same thing. All of a sudden they've lost their game. They've lost their ability. And, and the same thing, like you mentioned with music, you know, if I keep, you know, thinking that I'm hitting wrong notes and I keep playing the wrong notes over and over again. Um, and I repeat them a number of times. You've got jazz. No, I, I, I then I believe that. Um, <laughs> yeah, you caught that one. Um, then, so we can create a new habit to override the old habit. Uh, it's like the, uh, the felonious monk quote. There you go. But the new habit has to be repeated over and over again to override <laughs> the old habit. Or through hypnosis, just delete the data and reprogram in, have the client reprogram in the new um, habit they want to replace it with, and then have them reinforce that habit for a number of days or weeks until it becomes now their new their new behavior, their new neurology. Their so new- that, that gives us a good sense of the reprogramming. Can you say something about the deprogramming side? Like, okay, so we know that by repetition of, you know, it, it could be a bad pattern, right? But ideally we find a better pattern that we cultivate within ourselves through repetition. But what do we do about the things that are kicking around in there all the time that we'd like to deprogram? Well, there's two things we can do. We can do a form of self-hypnosis. And if we, if we, are, if we learn self-hypnosis, which is a, a, a way of just breathing in and out, thinking of relaxing, relaxing the muscles in your face, doing like a progressive scan of your body, becoming loose and limp and relaxed, then we can actually, in that state, in that self-induced receptive hypnotic state, we can see whatever that habit is, and we can actually, within our own mind, through visual imagery or another technique, we can detach and desensitize it ourselves. Now, with, with forms of therapy, hypnotherapy or psychotherapy or whatever, there's certain methods that we can do. I teach a technique called emotion replacement therapy. So when I work with a client, and I teach them how to go into hypnosis very receptively, and they lower all of their brainwave frequencies into a very dynamic state of, of, of receptiveness, meaning theta or delta, and we remove all, we, and they're able to lower all the activity going on within the brain, like lowering the volume of thought activity. In that state, I can do a process to do physiological, neurological, desensitization and deletion of that emotion or that habit. Because I think that every, mm. every, every thing that has been re- recorded as a habit 
has its connection in the mind as well as in the body. So it's not just a thought, but it's also a kinesthetic physiological reaction within their nervous system. So in that- Right, so they feel it. Right, so in that receptive state of hypnosis, like creating a, a mental analgesic state that is not involving external chemicals because the mind has a storehouse of these amazing chemicals that can be produced like the neuropeptides and, 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 and melatonin and other types of, you know, uh, relaxation agents or hormones in that state of open receptiveness through a process uh, that I utilize, I can, I can dissolve the emotional and physical experience. I can delete it through a, a kind of systematic uh, desensitization response process of bringing up the emotion without feeling it, deleting it out of the body, getting to the point where the client can think about that addiction or the habit, but there's no more emotional reaction. So the thought action doesn't create a reaction, meaning I've already removed 90% of its impact. It's just the thought without an amplification of the emotion attached to that thought. So you're kind of removing the kinesthetic aspect that that was previously associated. Yeah, exactly. But at the same time, prior to this uh, process, I find out what the what the recipient wants to replace it with and what they want to feel about the replacement and what that would feel like and what they'd be able to do if they have this new habit or new new experience or this new feeling. And then I... Yeah, I have a question about that. Um, And then I, I, then I, I work with them to download that through a physical movement to, to download that new program into their physiology, into their subconscious mind, almost like downloading a new program into a computer. Right. And then when they acknowledge that, that they have downloaded themselves, this new program, this new feeling, this new operating system, uh, then through a certain technique, um, they come back to full consciousness with kind of a new program, a new habit, replacing the old one. But the new habit has to be repeated and it has to, and it has to be motivated through the right thought activity through the right, right positive auto suggestions that they could give themselves to strengthen the emotion of the new habit. What were you going to say? So, yes, yeah, a few things. One is, uh, uh, you know, emphasizing just how important it is that you're in that receptive state in order for any of this to occur. There's a theme that's occasionally discussed on this show having to do with ideas about the Bagua and trigrams. So, I, you know, people who have thought about that, I'd point to the prenatal arrangement where Earth is in the root position. Earth is basically the emptiness, and that's in the root position of the prenatal. So just, just a little footnote for those people who are following that thread. But the, the, the question that comes to mind is, you had said something about, well, what do people want to put in there? You know, and of course, I, I listened to the program that you did, uh, the, the, the podcast with the armchair experts. Yeah, and that, there was a woman who, yeah, she wanted to feel better when she looked in the mirror, basically, right? And th- there's another instance where, if I'm not mistaken, you had hypnotized someone into believing that they were speaking with someone else, that they were, that they were speaking with like a, a famous actor or something like that. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, that was on a different TV show. Yes. So, so the thing that I'm asking is, 
if you were to like, depending on what people want, like what the program is that's inserted, I would imagine that it's going to be more effective if it's real. In other words, like the guy was hypnotized to think that he was speaking with Tom Cruise or something like that. Right. And mm-hmm. but but that wasn't obviously he wasn't speaking with Tom Cruise. And so that program wouldn't be able to have a lot of lasting power to it. But but the woman who was trying to like see her own inner beauty in the mirror instead of being bothered by all these imperfections that she thought it's like, well, that's a real thing. And that could really take hold. You know, and she had said at the end of the program that while she didn't necessarily feel like, oh, I'm the most beautiful thing in the world, she did notice that that negative thoughts weren't so powerful, that she wasn't being hung up by, oh, my God, look at that. You know, like so. uh, So it seems like there's something about the program that you're inserting has to be real. It has to be true. Uh, in order for it to really have legs, in order for it to really take hold. And on some level, that's really good news because all the manipulation stuff that's happening in this in this realm with NLP and what have you, quite often the programs that are being implanted are not real and not true. And one would hope that, you know, as people are confronted with the cognitive dissonance that happens when you're, uh, you know, when reality is giving you a message other than what you believe, that eventually those programs will be disabled. But of course, that can be a very traumatic thing for people to go through. So they really need to have an awareness of of what it is that that's going on so that they don't like, you know, blow a fuse or what have you. Does any of that resonate? Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. A hundred percent, brother. But you also said something very important. Um, and that is, I gave her what she wanted, not what I thought she needed. And I think that we mm. see in therapy that the doctors or the therapists or the hypnotists or the NLP people or whoever try to give you what they think you need. And that's a big mistake because I, 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 my theory is if I give you what I think you need, it's not going to take hold. But I, if I give you exactly what you want and you know exactly what that means and you've pinpointed what that, that thought or those words mean to you, and I incorporated that now from your consciousness into your subconscious, from, from both screens, the thoughts and the emotions, I'm gonna have a high, you're going to have a higher percentage of opportunity to be successful in it. Whether you think you were hypnotized or not, and let's face it, she wasn't the best subject for hypnosis highly analytical, highly resistant, um, and a disbeliever in the science that I was there to talk about, you know? Um, But the results spoke for itself. Yeah, that's another factor too. Yeah, so so she seemed surprised that she was noticing anything at all, you know, and and clearly, I mean, it'd be fascinating to know whether uh, at this point she still is having a better relationship with the mirror, you could say. The question as to whether or not people are able to know what they really do want. I mean, I, I, I love that attitude. And I think that the idea that the practitioner will know better what what's good for people is highly suspicious. But I also think that people don't always really know what's best for themselves either. So, you know, it seems like there's some problematics in all of that. 
but I do think that that what you're saying makes a lot of sense. That at least people should should be given the reins in that in that way, and that you know maybe they'll they'll go through a process and realize well the thing I asked for last time maybe wasn't the most important thing, you know. So you, you can imagine that that would be a progression, perhaps. You know I, what you said; it really makes a lot of sense. When I conduct my hypnotherapy sessions on Zoom. Uh, which I, which now all I do is internet hypnotherapy. I, I close my office because I think it's just effective hypnotizing people on the internet. When people are on the on their screens, they're already going into hypnosis. It's already created a almost like a a, a response, a trigger, because people engage. Oh, that's really leveraging the technology. The well, yeah, absolutely. So the computer is is hypnotic technology in itself. Ask the person surfing on eBay wow. or, or, or checking out things or involved right. <laughs> in Facebook conversations going back and forth. They're already in a fixated state. And if you notice, you'll probably see a dilation of the pupils. But I think what you said is profound. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put my glasses on so I can look a little more scientific. I think what you said is profound, and that is <laughs> it's important for the person that's coming in that I'm going to work with to know exactly what those goals are or, or to be able to fine tune them to the best of their ability. So most people I see, I have them send me an email of the goals they want to achieve. So they send me this email of the goals they want to achieve. And I want in that email, what is the challenge? What it, in simple terms, what is the problem that you have? How does it make you feel? What are the goals you want to achieve? And, and I want you to tell me those in positive words, because usually they color all the all, all of their challenges and a bunch of negative stuff. They're filled with all this mm -hmm. negative suggestion. They own ownership. To, I'm lazy. I'm not motivated. I'm fat. I hate exercising. Well, guess what? That client is 100% successful before they came in to see me because they're using <laughs> their mind successfully, but maybe in a non-productive way. But they are successful. If I say I hate exercising and and I don't exercise, have I failed in hating exercising? No, I've succeeded in hating exercising. You know? <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah, It's really time, interesting how the language kind of, uh, it really does hey define man, us. It's true, brother. Every time I fly on an airplane, I have a panic attack. Well, they're making that an absolute truth. Every time <laughs> I fly on an airplane or a jet, I have a panic attack, a full-blown meltdown. They'll write that down. So they have ownership, and and for them to not have a panic attack, they're not fulfilling their their goal of being successful and having those panic <laughs> attacks. They're successful in it. Right. I had a, a fascinating lady the other day, public speaker. Got him putting these glasses on and off. Look at that. I'm like, you know, it's not a hypnotic thing. I'm not. This is not the hypnotic glasses. You never know. Like, we never Look know what eyes. technique you're using on us, Look Tom. I feel your eyes start to become very heavy, droopy, drowsy, wanting to close, but don't close your eyes. But even though you want them to close, don't close your eyes. See, anyway, sorry, I just had to go there. Um, okay, on the count of three, you'll focus in on this show because it really is an amazing, <laughs> amazing talk. The, the other thing is when the client or the recipient or patient or the person I'm working with, with well, when my team partner, I like that, when my team partner writes down the goals they want to achieve and how they want to feel when they achieve those goals, that's just the beginning of my process. Someone says, well, I want to I wanna eat healthy foods. I want to exercise. 
Well, the challenge that that they have, why they haven't reached those goals, is because they've generalized those goals. I want to be happy. I need to know what what exercise you'll give yourself permission to do every day or every week. How many times a day? What it, what if you want to eat healthy? What what what's healthy foods mean to you? I don't want to tell them what a healthy food is, because maybe I'm going right. to tell them it's Brussels sprouts. Maybe they are disgusted with Brussels sprouts, but I'm going to give them what I think they need. Bullshit. Sorry, I don't do that. I want them to fine tune the goals, and I want to understand what those goals mean to them. Well, I want to exercise. Well, what when you say exercise, what does that mean? Well, I want to be able to go to the gym and work out. Okay, so if you were able to go to the gym and work out, what what type of uh, uh, what would you work out with? What would you use? Well, I want to use the treadmill. Okay, so if you go to the gym um, to exercise and you want to use the treadmill, well, what? How many um, minutes would you give yourself permission? to exercise on that treadmill that are doable. You can always do more, but I don't want you to sabotage it. I want you to use it as an excuse to say, oh, well, I didn't do two hours. You haven't exercised. You haven't used the treadmill. You haven't been to a gym. The only time you think about a gym is remove, is re, re, is renewing your membership. So that's how gyms get rich is because very few people actually create the positive habit of positive physical dynamic activity. Doesn't positive physical dynamic activity sound a lot better than exercising? Oh, I got to exercise. They've already used that word and colored it with resistance. So now I'll say, Mm. so if you gave yourself permission to go to the gym and to go on that treadmill, uh, how many minutes would be a doable amount of minutes that you will Give yourself permission to be accountable towards doing that is something you know you can do as a starting point. See, if I don't get you out of that gate, you're going to always be there not participating in your own in, in your own process of moving ahead. So you make it as specific as possible. So you really paint the picture and flush it out so that it's a very uh, well-defined thing that yes. being implanted. And we work on achieving success in short-term goals. Because if I can't be successful in a short-term goal, then I will never be successful in reaching a long-term goal. It's like I used to teach a course in Holland called Access, uh, Access Success Now. It was a, a, um, it was a training program to delete resistance um, and to be able to install motivation to reach your goal. But we have to do it in, in doable steps. If it's too easy, then you're not applying any effort. If it's too difficult, there's too much stress and resistance, and you'll probably sabotage it. But if I can work on uh, putting in a program, working with the client, and giving them a program that they're accepting to go to the gym, to go onto that treadmill, and to be on that treadmill for 15 minutes at a time, and that the doable goal is they'll do that at least two times a week, because you're not going to be running 20 mile marathons unless you can, you know, unless you're able to start walking and then jogging and and making it a a, a goal driven thing. If I can be successful reaching a short goal, I'm more motivated to move ahead to reach the next plateau, the next goal. Right and on. So, right on. Uh, and then I make them accountable to themselves and to me. So um, and and if they sabotage it. 
hey, that's just the way they wanted to do it. It's, it's out right, of my right. control what people do when I teach them the tools. But if if they can if they can create um, small steps, those small steps will become bigger and greater, and they'll be able to reach an end result of that goal. Because every day they're getting out of an uncomfortable comfort zone, and they're moving into a new a new reality that knows no limitations or boundaries. Wonderful. Well, Tom, we have spoken for over two hours now, and I'm sure we could continue for another hour or so, but uh, so as not to overwhelm the audience, I would just like to say, uh, I think that you've shown us that there's a great depth to this uh, technique and a lot of wisdom in what you're doing. I hope people will go check out your website, tomsilver.com, correct? Yeah, absolutely. It was a real pleasure speaking with you. And I also think that that what we're really being left with here is just how important it is, the things that we're telling ourselves, the narratives that are going around our head, the formulations, the way that we're saying things, the way that we think of things, all those things have incredible profound significance and, and we should really reflect on them as we're trying to sort through life and, and uh, hopefully improve. Right, absolutely. And remember, become the director of your thoughts. Not the opera, not being operated by your thoughts. Even practice telling your mind when to think, what to think, how to think, and when to stop thinking. And don't believe every thought you think is the truth, because many of the thoughts that we think have been programmed into our mind by ourselves or by others. Um, and and if I realize that my mind isn't always telling me the truth, it's just activity going on, and I can separate from certain activities that are detrimental to my quality of life, I've already been empowered to be the operator of this amazing dual processing computer that is fantastic. If I operate it correctly, and if I am the controller and operator of my thoughts and my emotions, Nothing and no one will stand in the way of the reality I deserve to have and own every single day and in every way. Absolutely. Beautifully said. And, I, and if I understand you correctly, when you're saying uh, that my thoughts are not true in, in that whole thing, you're wrapping in the emotions as well, because it, it, it's a connected, you know, the, the conscious and unconscious in some sense are uh, the same thing. The, the, the mechanism within us, we're aware of some of it, right? And right. we're not aware of a lot of it. Uh, but yeah, that, that's the whole thing. We get these messages. They ain't always true. Ain't well, always and, so. And you said something very profound. And that is, and we're going to take this to a different level now. I mean, beautiful. You you are an amazing human being. We're taking it to a different level. And that is, don't believe that every emotion you feel is the truth about who you are either. Because just like your thoughts, emotions come and go. And if I don't engage, if I don't nurture it, if I don't massage it, if I don't feed feed it, then it goes away because it's no longer attached to me. And it's the same thing. So be a witness to your emotions and realize that, that if I'm feeling an emotion now, it's a short-term reality. And when I disengage in it, and I engage in something positive or productive, it goes away, it disappears, it deamplifies, it deletes. I love it. Yeah. Another, way saying, another way of saying that, that that I really like is, you know, who are we to say who we are? I like that. And remember, what I believe and perceive into reality is simply a manifestation of my imagination sometimes. 
Yeah, we don't no. really know what reality is. We, we, we have to maintain a fair amount of humility in this whole thing. Well, but absolutely. I think we're, we're running the risk of talking for another hour. Let's, let's go. Well, that'll be part <laughs> two. We'll be back. Tom okay, we'll pick we'll it up back. again some other time. I will be back. Thanks so much I, for I coming on. Back. Okay. <laughs> thank, thank you for coming on the show, Tom. Hey, my pleasure. Take care, brother. Thanks for listening. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home.